Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. We're introducing some new segments called the Real Estate Syndication Show Highlights, where we are bringing you a look back at episodes focused on a specific topic that we believe added a lot of value to you in your syndication journey. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Also hit the notification bell so you can continue to know when new shows come out. Have a blessed day. Our guest is Hunter Thompson. Thanks for being on the show, Hunter. No problem, Whitney. Thanks again for having me on. Tell me the asset class that you're mostly focused on now and why. So I have been focused for the last four years on the recession-resistant asset classes, most notably mobile home parks and cell storage. The thesis for those is relatively straightforward. A lot of your listeners are probably familiar with the statistic. As of the recording of this, we're on the 111th month of our expansionary period which is the second longest recovery in history of the United States, at least since the Civil War, which is basically how far the data goes back. So you're looking at that. You're looking at the lack of income growth that's been taking place over the last several decades. You're looking at 10,000 baby boomers, many of them entering retirement for the very first time with very little savings. And there's just a lot of negative economic data points. So this really drew me to look at asset classes that are prepared basically to perform in all stages of the economic cycle. So the key is that something like mobile home parks, relatively straightforward, the worse the economy does, the more demand there is for the product. Now that makes sense with mobile home parks, but with self-storage, I think it's just as compelling, but it's not as obvious. So when it comes to self-storage, people use that product when they're going through some kind of transitional period in their lives. A lot of those can be brought on by recessions. So you think about kids moving home from college or people downsizing or people changing jobs, all of them are more common during recessions and all of them can be a great way to increase the demand for the product. And so, you know, from a big picture perspective, that's the reason that I was introduced into the self-storage asset class and self-storage alone accounts for about 30% of my overall portfolio as well. Nice. So you were talking about being recession-proof, the performance doesn't really affect it by the market as much as maybe some other asset classes. Can you go into a little more detail there? Why is it not affected, say, like multifamily? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think, first of all, the ways in which you can add value, and when I specifically say that, I mean NOI, there's just so many ways to add value that it can really help mitigate those challenges. A lot of people, when they think about adding value to the NOI, the reason they're doing it is they're trying to increase the IRR. Well, when you're late in an economic cycle, it's important to focus on the opposite of that, protecting your equity position. And so when it comes to recessions, number one, the tenant base isn't very price sensitive. So the main reason is that not only is demand inversely correlated with the economy because of that whole downsizing component that I mentioned earlier, but when you're talking about raising rents, you may go from a 10 by 10 unit may rent from $150 a month or so. This is a prime climate controlled unit. If you raise rents by 6%, which is basically unheard of in the multi-plan lease sector, especially over the long term, you're talking about $9 a month. So the question really becomes, is the tenant going to take the time off work, hire a rental truck, get movers, move down the street where they're probably going to do the same thing just for that $9 a month? So you're really starting to pad your equity when you're dealing with the tenant base that's not price sensitive. 
But there are other ways that you can add value by just implementing more uh, prevalent management strategies that some of the top tier operators do. So an example I love to give is using U-Haul components. So we look for properties that have no relationships with U-Haul or rental truck rental companies. We'll buy these properties based on in-place income and then leverage that relationship, facilitate the transaction with movers. And this is obvious. Most people are using those trucks when they're moving in and out of those facilities. And we just facilitate the transaction and get a commission from U-Haul for doing so. The key here though, when I said earlier about asymmetric returns, the key here is that we're not incurring a proportional amount of risk to implement that strategy. We're not buying the trucks. We're not maintaining the trucks. We're simply allowing U-Haul to park their trucks on our facility. And so I have personally invested in properties where that one line item has gone from $0 a month to $3,500 a month, directly to the bottom line. There's relatively no overhead for doing that. So when you're looking at that on a cap rate basis, you're talking about $600,000, $700,000 of value added to the property. So that's a great way to protect your equity because in the event that there's a significant correction in the capital markets, that $700,000 of equity is going to come in very handy. So that'll kind of give you some of the insights in terms of why I think it's recession resistant. It's about the complexity of the asset class and that inverse correlation with the demand. And you talked about it a little bit, but do you prefer self-storage over, say, multifamily? You know, and why? You mentioned that. It's a good question. So one of the things that I would say about multifamily, I personally love multifamily, right? So I've invested in virtually every type of real estate, especially commercial real estate, and love investing in multifamily. We'll love to do it again in the future. I sold most of my multifamily in 2015, probably a little bit earlier than I should have, but the opportunity was there. And the answer to your question, I don't see the same inverse correlation. Now, the argument can be made that people are less likely to buy houses during a recession, etc. But in most of the markets that you're seeing a lot of activity in, there's a really significant cap rate compression that's been taking place. And the argument is that you're going to see a cap rate expansion within that time period. So if you're looking at properties in the Midwest, for example, that are trading at a 5.5 cap, that were trading at an 8 cap only three years ago, it's very likely that those same properties are going to hit an 8 cap sometime soon. And you have to be very cautious about the debt you're using if you're looking at multifamily in those asset classes. Not to mention the amount of development that comes online in a lot of these markets, like Texas, which is where most people like to invest in multifamily. Again, it's not something you shouldn't be considering. It's just that those are some of the reasons that drove me to mobile home parks and self-storage. I find those theses very, very compelling and hard to debunk. And while they are just big picture theses, the data is very, very compelling in terms of backing that claim up. So tell somebody that's listening who's just getting into the syndication business, maybe they're considering self-storage. What are some of the best ways that you've educated yourself about that asset class? Well, first of all, I mean, I can link you to an ebook I wrote, which I think probably takes about 40 minutes to read. And it'll give you a really good understanding as why I find it compelling and some of the data that backs up some of the claims I've made earlier. And that's cashflowconnections.com slash download slash ebook. I can also link to that. But generally speaking, there's an amazing amount of content available in podcasts like this. I spent years going to networking events that were basically a waste of my time. It really was the networking that I was getting out of it and not the education. Podcasts like yours allow extremely high-level experts to come on. People don't hold anything back if you're having a one-on-one conversation with them. 
I'm imagining so much great content coming out from the podcast community over the last couple of years and going forward as well. Generally speaking, I'm a huge proponent of the passive investment model. And so if you're a syndicator and you're thinking about doing something like this, I would be very cautious about building a business around self-storage right now. What I would be much more interested in, this is a personality thing, I would be trying to identify best-in-class operators that you can joint venture with or partner with. And so your due diligence needs to be focused on them as people, their structure, their entire operations, their security, etc., as opposed to how you personally can buy your first self-storage facility. Because of the complexities of the asset class, I think the asset class lends itself to identifying best-in-class and partnering with them as opposed to creating your own systems, et cetera. So tell us, how do we vet the teams that we want to partner with? Say you find other guys in the self-storage business who have long track records, they've been in the business a long time. How do you vet them? How do you know that's somebody you want to partner with? Totally. And this is the main question, right? Because it all has to do with the people you're making a bet on. So number one, I think it's a really good understanding. I'll put it this way. Everyone asks the same questions, but I think if you go two or three levels deeper, you're going to actually get some data that's going to be really interesting and will actually allow you to make a bet on the right people. So what I mean by that is when I get that question, I think most people's answer is look at their track record, look at the number of assets they have under management. Okay. That is absolutely true. And you definitely want to do that. But going at least one step deeper, analyze that track record based on market timing and market conditions. Take a look at when the company was founded, when these assets were purchased, and compare that to what has taken place in the economy overall since that time. So that way you can try to get a really get an understanding of how much their marketing, their market expertise played a role in those returns that they experienced, as opposed to just the market as a whole. Because the market to repeat the last 10 years is pretty much historically impossible in terms of how favorable it's been. So one of the things that you can do, again, is just trust but verify. So what I mean by that is a sponsor may claim, I own a $50 million property in Florida. And these were the returns that we were able to generate from owning this property. Well, anyone can claim that they own that property. So how do you verify that? Well, there are services you can get a preliminary title report, for example, and pull the title on this property and see what entity owns that property. Usually 150 bucks, maybe $200. That way you can actually see if they own the property and then they can run the chain of title just to see where that entity lines up in terms of, do they actually own that entity? Those are the types of things I like to do. And each time you take that step, go to that extra level. It may be a little uncomfortable the first time to ask someone to provide that type of information to get their social security number for a background check, et cetera. But those things are relatively cost efficient and can give you some really good answers. So again, you've heard all the main questions. It's just finding out the follow-up and follow-up question to get to the bottom of what's going on. Our guest, my friend, Paul Moore. Thanks for being on the show, Paul. Hey, it's great to be here, Whitney. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Could you speak to what you said about being recession resistant and about those asset classes and why that is? Yeah, absolutely. So think about mobile home parks. It costs anywhere from five to $12,000 to move a mobile home. And so it's believed that only 1% of mobile home parks are owned by institutional investors. 99% are therefore by independent operators. A lot of those are mom and pops. And if you can find the right one, acquire that mobile home park and start upgrading the park, upgrading the office, upgrading the experience, 
you can add a lot of value. I never really thought would have thought you could add value to a mobile home park, but you can also raise rents. A lot of the mom and pop owners might have 100, 300 lots, and they haven't raised rents in many, many years, and they're way below the market. Well, if you raise rents, and again, I'm, I'm not talking about in an unethical way, but if you raise rents to the market value, people are probably not going to spend $5,000 or even 10 or 12 for a double wide to move down the street to save 30 or $40 a month. It's probably not going to happen. And every mobile home park operator I've talked to has said this. And so you can raise the rents to a reasonable level. And it's the only asset class I know of, Whitney, where the supply is actually diminishing and the demand is the same or increasing every year. You know, there's 10,000 people a day turning 65 in the U.S. And one in three have zero save for retirement. One in two have less than 10,000 save for retirement. A lot of them do, 60%, have home equity though. And a lot of those people are willing to trade their home equity to get a mobile home and move into a mobile home park and now have... $250 to $500 a month in lot rent, and they can greatly decrease their costs and go on to Social Security as they ride off into the sunset. So that's mobile home parks, self-storage. Now think about it. In great times, when people are crowding the cash registers at Walmart or jamming the checkout at Amazon, they're buying stuff and they need a place to put that stuff. Also, baby boomers and even millennials now are losing their parents. And there's like all of my wife and my parents are gone. There's a lot of antiques and heirlooms and things we don't want to get rid of, but we don't have room for it. Places like Florida, Texas, and California don't have basements typically. So they need a place to put their stuff. Their attics are too hot in places like Florida. So they need a place to put their stuff. And in bad times... People are downsizing from, say, a 4,000-square-foot home to a 2,000 or a 2,000-square-foot home to an apartment. And when they do that, for a relatively small amount of money, they can store their stuff at a self-storage facility. Now, if I had an apartment and I was renting it to you, Whitney, for $1,000 a month and I raised your rent by 6%, you might move for $60 a month, especially considering you know you're going to be there for years to come. You've chosen that life. But... If I raise your $100 a month self-storage unit by 6%, you're probably not going to rent a U-Haul, get your friends together, get all sweaty to move your stuff down the street to save $6 a month. And so, especially when you think as a tenant, you're probably not going to be there more than a few more months anyway, which is what many, many tenants think. And of course, as it dings their credit card month after month, year after year, they're often there a lot longer than they planned. So self-storage tenants are sticky. And I don't mean they have Velcro suits on. They're sticky. They stay. And so do mobile home park tenants through thick and thin. So if across the board, like everything was the same as far as number of people looking for that asset class, say on a percentage per the size of the asset class or number of those units across the country, what class would you choose then? Now that you're experienced with each one, let's say, you know, the field is equal on all of them. Out of all those three? Yes. I would choose a very specific value add formula with self-storage. 
So there are 53,000 self-storage facilities in the country. They're growing by 2,000 this year. So I guess they'll be at, well, you do the math. No, it's 55,000. It was a joke. But seriously, 55,000 self-storage facilities in the country. It's believed that about 40,000 are operated by independent operators like mom and pops. Okay. And so there used to be a mantra, if you build it, they will come. And it was true because self-storage was new in the 70s and the 80s. And people could just build a self-storage facility on a field near town and it would fill up. And so these operators operated these like mom and pops. They operated these like a passive piece of real estate. And that was the draw for me. In 1999, I almost built a self-storage facility near a little town called Rocky Mount, Virginia. And I had the land available and I thought about it, but then I thought, oh man, somebody else could throw in another 500 units right next door. And I couldn't really stop them. And I'm glad I didn't do it because I didn't know I would have been one of those mom and pops that needed to be acquired. But anyway, these mom and pop operators often don't have websites. They often build it for a fraction of today's value. They're getting a massive return on investment. They have a part-time person working a phone and they don't have a showroom. They don't do a lot of marketing. They don't raise their rents. There's all kinds of things they don't do that a professional operator could do. So here's the opportunity, Whitney, and this, like I said, of all these asset classes, this is what I would do. I would go in and find a self-storage facility that's in the path of progress, but that's outdated that is perhaps doesn't have a website, doesn't have great marketing, all these things, and maybe has some room to build additional units. I would acquire that. So number one, I would acquire from a mom and pop. You know, they say you make money when you buy. Well, with this strategy, you make money when you buy, when you operate, and when you sell. So number one, I would acquire from a mom and pop. Number two, I would go in and change every policy and procedure that made sense. For example, I would add a really nice website. I would start looking for tenants who are not price sensitive. I would start culling off the tenants that were. I'd start raising rates to the market rent. I would start selling units individually to tenants based on their motivation, their income level, etc. In other words, we can get to know each tenant with Facebook and all the other tools we have out there. We can actually get to know these tenants And we know if one comes from California and they're relocating and they're building a home and it's going to take them a year to build a home, well, they're not going to move. And we can raise their rates a little bit more than somebody else who's really price sensitive. So I would market that way. I would operate that way. I would add U-Haul. And that would, or Penske, and that would add a one to 3,000 a month. I even, I visited with one recently in Rockledge, Florida, that was saying that their revenue from U Haul, their commissions alone were $5,000 a month. I would add U Haul. I would add a showroom with locks, boxes, tape, and scissors for sale. I would add admin fees, late fees, and I would begin to really evaluate the demand in the market. You know, a mom and pop owner just says, hey, we're out of 10 by 10, sorry. But a great operator prices the last one or two in a high demand unit size much higher. Yeah, we've got 10 by 10s, they're X, and they're higher than the, you know what we sold the one for last week. And I would additionally go in and evaluate what 
the sizes were that were in most demand. And then I would build more of that size or I would, you know, this is just sheet metal and concrete. I would knock out some walls and reconfigure to get the sizes that were in the most demand. And that's what a professional operator does. And so I would operate well, and then I would plan to sell it to an institutional. In fact, I would do it with several in a region. I would bump them up to a professionally run operation. I would add units if I could, and then I would sell it to a REIT for a compressed cap rate. And so that is a long answer, but that's what I would do. And if you look at the value formula in commercial real estate versus the value formula for residential, you'll know why I would do it this way and why I would be in commercial real estate in general. We hope that you have enjoyed the highlight show today. You can always listen to the full episodes that were featured today by clicking the links in the show notes page in the, in the description box. Let us know in the comments what you thought of this episode, or you can go to lifebridgecapital.com forward slash podcast and click the feedback button. Let us know how we can add more value to you. Thank you and talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show, brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success. 